The rave thing was really important. Punks, gangs of hooligans, skinheads, rockabillies. Raving wiped all that away. Raves were nuts to have that level of freedom. We used to stand in a field just feeling sorry for the people that weren't there to witness it or be part of that absolute revolution. Rave is more punk than punk ever was because kids didn't even think about breaking the law. They just wanted to get to a rave. The spirit was amazing. That's Gavin Watson, rave photographer. And I'm Stephen Coates, and this is the Bureau of Lost Culture. Gavin Watson there was talking about the first rave culture of the 1980s and early 1990s. I wasn't there, but I've heard about it. It was a kind of second summer of love, a reflowering perhaps of the countercultural wild spirit of the 1960s, fueled by a new kind of music, a new kind of technology, and a new kind of drug. It was followed in the late 90s and early noughties by another acid rave countercultural scene, of which I know nothing about whatsoever. The acid house squat parties taking place in abandoned buildings, in city centres, often right under the noses of the authorities and the property developers. Promoted, funded and operated by a radical bunch of daring, anarchistic, underground, resourceful characters, psychedelic pirates perhaps, motivated by a combination of good vibes, anti-establishmentarianism and music. Some of them veterans of that previous rave scene, some of them newcomers inspired by those scenes. And such is my guest today, who's going to take us on a trip following his own journey deep into the heart of that scene. He's known as the tallest DJ in the world. He's a veteran of a thousand festivals, promoter of festivals himself these days. And of course, he was a promoter of some of those acid house squat parties. He is Mr. William Wiles. Welcome, Will. Hello, Stephen. Nice to be here. Welcome to the Bureau of Lost Culture. Now, Will, uh, you didn't quite start off as a DJ, as a festival guy, did you? You started off as a nice middle-class boy, didn't you? I certainly did. I grew up in a series of vicarages in leafy suburbs in the 90s. Um, and uh, when Castle Morton was going on and, you know, the sort of public moral panic about raving was uh, at its peak, I was absorbing the stories through the Sunday Times <laughs> principally. Um, Where did it all go wrong? I've got two very strong memories of, of how I absorbed the Castle Morton events and things of that nature. One is um, I watched an episode of Inspector Morse with my family, which was all about the rave scene and was a kind of cautionary tale about it, how it's you know all going wrong for, for the participants. And it was all nice to start with, but it was all terrible and it was run yes. by gang bosses and things. And... Uh, the other thing that I absorbed was the a, I remember looking at a double page spread in the Times in full colour with a big ecstasy tablet in the middle and lots of uh, case studies from ravers or you know people who tried ecstasy and of course they all had to kind of say that something bad had happened to them because they took it and both uh, both items were sort of emphasising the fact that it's all fun to begin with but then it all goes wrong and so as a teenager you especially a teenager who went to church every week you kind of absorb that and uh, take it at face value but the truth is you've got two things going on one is going oh it'll end badly you know everyone's passionately smoking uh, anti-smoking when they're 12 and start smoking later <laughs> you know and then the other part is you go oh it part of you is appealed to it it's kind of sexy and it's kind of interesting and so as you get older and your attitude to risk changes you kind of go well why not 
why not try it? It's supposed to be really fun. Yeah, it's a funny change, that, isn't it? But I mean, we should just backpedal a bit, actually, because you mentioned Castle Morton, and that came up with a previous episode when we had when we had uh, Chris Tofu here talking about it. But for anybody who doesn't know what those two words, Castle Morton, signify, just tell us. Well, I guess it was um, the zenith in um, you know public awareness of the '90s rave scene because it was huge. Um, it had a lot of coverage in the media and it went on all weekend and so suddenly everyone knew about these massive raves that were happening that um, you know somehow young people knew all about but they didn't um, and disgusted at Tunbridge Wells kind of got on board and the Criminal Justice Act came out of that. Right so it's the first time when it kind of that whole underground countercultural you know free festival free event sort of thing illegal events as they became known sort of popped into public consciousness on a big scale, was it? Yes, and the things that I saw as a teenager were essentially, uh, you know, media articles and, and uh, programmes and things that had only really, wor- you know, that had been produced having found out about Castle Morton and then thought, well, we better say something mm-hmm. about this then. Um, yeah, I mean, if we, and we're going to talk really about your times, which is the sort of 90s onwards in terms of that kind of rave culture and, the f- you know, the free uh party scene or whatever you know all that stuff but in fact that was the kind of you know you said to me earlier it was the sort of second iteration of this stuff it really kind of started in 1988 right with the acid house parties now that's something i know nothing about i mean just give me a quick description about what that whole thing the second summer of love what did it all mean and uh, how did we get to you know that sunday times article and that inspector morse episode the people that I um, was involved with um, putting on parties uh, who were there talked about talked about a time in their life where they went out every weekend to parties that were, you know, I suppose to use the modern phrase, lit. And, uh, and ecstasy was phen- phenomenally strong um, and more expensive, but you literally bought one tablet and you were good. You know, I mean, the Summer of Love, from their stories of it, was an appropriate title. People were genuinely, um, it broke down boundaries and, you know, there were music, there was music that you couldn't hear anywhere else and, you know, people just went for it all weekend. I mean, I feel like, you know, some of the listeners will have had their own experiences mm. with partying and when it's really, really good, you know, certain things happen that don't happen at other social occasions and I think it was just that just the the biggest amount you could imagine and going on every weekend and so people just didn't worry about other things that were going on in their life they just lived to party for a bit I mean this is, well, this is what this says on the uh, the Museum of Youth Culture it says in the summer of 1988 a new kind of music appeared in clubs abandoned warehouses and fields across the UK and it became known as Acid House with influences from Detroit Chicago Germany and Ibiza rave was an international movement that Britain made its own the second summer of love, as the summers of 88 and I became known. Redefine nightlife for generations to come. Well, so it's 20 years after the the first summer of love, 67, 68, right? Uh, isn't that amazing? Only 20 years, and in fact now it's 40 years ago. It's kind of strange, know, strange sort of slips into history. But, I mean, Will, so, okay, so that was, that, was, that was the background to this stuff, and, you know, you've pointed to it there. Um, interestingly, you, one could see some of this stuff in terms of the history of drugs in the UK. You know, the 60s fueled by acid and weed, 70s maybe more by cocaine and speed in the punk era. And then when, that, when sort of MDMA came in, that combination of mixing with that sort of music, 
Was that it? This sort of this strange kind of like constellation of things. Uh, the free festival circuit, MDMA, new type of music. You know, these massive waves of everyone doing the same thing came about when new music had come out that everybody liked and new drugs had come out that everybody liked. And the production of the music has a l- had a lot to do with the experience on the drugs, without a doubt. They were made, they were co-created. Um, and certainly if when I, the stuff I read about the 60s and, you know, psychedelic art and all of that kind of stuff really, you know, bears some comparison. And uh, the form of the culture that is produced is is importantly linked to the drugs that stimulate the scene, without a doubt. Yeah, right. So we're going to f- fast forward to your time there. But you know, just before we started, we were saying that in the intervening years, what actually happened, which was quite interesting, is, is that the criminal justice bill came after Castle Morton, as you said. There was this clampdown on the kind of illegal warehouse or raves out in the countryside. But in fact, actually, what happened is, is that people's appetite for that kind of music and for dancing was absorbed by the mainstream, wasn't it? Because that was the birth of those, those that club culture, you know, I mean, in, in this very city, right? You know, fabric and heaven and those things. So it kind of went mainstream for a while, right? Well, I've heard some talks about um, what, what, where the vacuum was that led to the original, uh, the, the second summer of love, which was that clubs were very expensive. You had to wear stupid blooming clothes that cost a fortune from the high street to go. And so, th- and no one played that music in, in in venues. And as you say, that changed after the explosion of the rave scene. Um, but I think there's there's a, it's easy to think that the criminal justice bill happened and then illegal culture got shut down. But it's just not true. I mean, the what they clamped down on people driving around the M25 and find you know you know hundreds of cars parked up waiting to be told where the rave was, but. The areas where um, the authorities weren't looking are deep in the East End or, you know, up by the North Circular or places like this where there are huge abandoned buildings and, you know, and not areas that were heavily policed. And so, you know, using, I suppose the emergence of mobile phones is key as well in this because party line numbers were distributed. They could be changed, you know, every week or every month. And all you needed was to hand out black and white flyers with the name of the systems, the sound systems um, on, which was sort of people referred to as the party collectors by systems. So they'd have the name of the systems on and a few phone numbers on and people would just phone up after nine or ten o'clock at night, find out where it was and go. So, <laughs> the, I mean, the point is, is by the time the police found out about it, there would be you know, hundreds or thousands of people in the venue, at which point the police are not going to spend those resources which aren't even booked on that night or risk any, you know, needless confrontations. And there's a sort of, there became a sort of tacit understanding that the um, the rave wouldn't disturb any normals kind of thing. It would be Normals done. being people who don't it, rave. People right. who don't rave, people who, you know, might be offended. You know, mm-hmm. they would... You know, a, a good site for a squat party is somewhere where there's not lots of residential nearby. And that would, having scouted site warehouses for my own parties, that was one of the main <laughs> criteria. And I learned that right. from the people who I got to know from going to parties. Right. So 
So what you're saying is that after the criminal justice bill, which for anybody who doesn't know was this attempt but to kind of legislate against these kind of illegal parties, and it had all these ridiculous things about repetitive beats and gatherings and all this sort of stuff. It was kind of slightly kind of Soviet-style kind of social control, which didn't really work, right? But you're saying after that, so what happens is that club culture goes mainstream, the big, expensive, heaven, you know, fabric and all that stuff in the cities, but carries on underground... For the people who want to do that, just a bit more out of the way, a bit more out of sight, a bit more discreetly. There were probably enough laws for the police to break up raids before the Criminal Justice Act. Right. What it did was, um, you know, codify a sort of series of criteria that made it very easy. Um, but, you know, it was all against the law, inverted commas. And the point about pulling these things off is is you know totally different from whether they're legal or not and so you know people became more and more sophisticated at doing what was required to make sure you could operate outside of the law and not get shut down well look, let's fo- let's fast forward to you so there you are in wimbledon nice church going boy you've opened the uh, pages of the sunday times as a gigantic smiley face staring out at you i think it was a dove actually dove, yeah. okay. <laughs> <laughs> that in combination with this uh, uh, intriguing episode of Inspector Morse, which I'm going to have to hunt down there. Yes. Uh, uh, so what happened? Uh, well, I, I went to university. Sort of at the end of my first year of university, I fell in with a crowd and we went partying two, three times a week. Um, you know, in our student union, they had lots of really good events, you know, great DJs like LTJ Bookham or DJ Shadow or, you know, who Jeff Mills, you know, lots of people would come and play all the time. And then there were venues in town. And in the uh, in the beginning of my second year, there was a, a techno collective. This is in Newcastle upon Tyne, um, so far from London and far from the beaten track in many ways. But there was a techno collective called the Rabble Alliance that started, and it was you know the traditional thing. We went to a pub called the Tanners Arms in uh, on one side of Biker Bridge, and waited to be told where the location was. And the first party that they put on was about half a mile away under biker bridge in a railway archway um and you know it was a all-night party probably finished at about eight nine o'clock in the morning um and was yeah i think it ended up having a sort of mild legendary status it was brilliant you know it was a techno party i met a huge number of people in one night and um, as someone who you know struggled a lot socially at school actually i look back on it now and think you know one of the Mm. probably initial reasons why i got so into the party culture it's it's so accepting you know and Mm. it's so it's kind of wonderful isn't it and they're also just exciting you know waiting in the pub waiting for the kind of the message to come through about where it is i mean it's all there's something sort of daring do about it isn't there and for me i was living out the fantasy of you know the inspector morse at that (laughs) point because i you know it was just like it had been described to be and it was very exciting in that sense Mm. and yeah felt illicit and you know Mm. and there, there is that sort of I, I used the word sexy, you know, earlier, and I think there is something uh, something that's appropriate in a way. You know, you're doing something you oughtn't to be. Mm. Well, I mean, I don't know whether, of course, you know, how connected it is to the, to the you know, the, the bonhomie and the kind of, this sort of sense of empathy which is generated by MDMA or ecstasy, or whether it's the good vibes of the music or just that general countercultural spirit of young people together doing something which is the bit, risking undercover isn't it but it's a sort of wonderful community that that sort of runs through it all as well doesn't there's this kind of community thing as well it kind of like eliminated differences between people you had all these different kind of people punks rockabillies or whatever they were 
that stuff kind of didn't matter anymore somehow. Um, and also, I think there's this drop in football violence after the, the sort of, you know, the, the coming of the kind of the, the rave scene. It, that's, yeah. that's been a sort of theme, I think, you know, the, one of the most positive things running through the kind of countercultural stuff from the 50s onwards is that sense of class breakdown. I mean, you know, my projects have been Soviet Union and uh, one of the only kind of real Soviet subculture was still Yagi, who were these kids who, you know, dressed as far as they could in Western gear and listened to jazz and swing underground, you know, <clears throat> on X-ray records or whatever. The interesting thing about that group was that in Soviet terms, it was classless because you had, you know, the, the, the sons and daughters, the so-called golden youth, who were the kids whose fathers and mothers were, you know, high-level Appalachniks and diplomats and that sort of stuff. And you had, you know, the intelligentsia's uh, children, you know, university lecturers and doctors and stuff, and then working-class kids. And they, they were all kind of you know, together in it, you know, because there was they were all doing something counter, actually. I suppose that's it. With I think that's it. I, I received an education from a number of different people, an underground education. And um, as someone who, I guess, had been brought up in the middle class, it's uh, taught to respect the law, um, I was educated in how you didn't have to or how you could go about not respecting the law to do things that were uh, important in some way, that were valuable in some way. And so, you know, I mean, maybe there's a sense of respect, which I always had, um, of uh, realising that that, you know, that that was, um, that was a gracious act on behalf of people who perhaps had every right not to share. You know, because I I had privilege, but that was never that never entered the conversation. That never entered. That was never a right. dynamic. The point is, if you if you wanted to do, if you wanted to get involved, you were welcome. Um, and yeah, I mean, people would if you, if you brought any of that sort of you know uh, privileged shit to the table, then you'd be quickly <laughs> disabused of those notions. But right. I don't think I ever did. So it never right. happened. So let's take you back to that morning. You've actually had a long night um, in the railway arch with. Um, Great sounds. You're 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 a young guy. You've just met all these people. You just had a sort of extremely exciting night. You're sitting around with them then and then. So take us on to the next step. Yeah, I think um, those parties by the Rebel Alliance went on for a bit. You know, they happened on consecutive weeks, which is sort of the aim: is to have a weekly or fortnightly scene or something every month. And changing venue each time. Yeah, change of venue. Um, actually, you know, these venues were pretty close to the centre of town. I mean, um, and then on. It was 1999, and so the millennium was happening, and you know anyone who was around and going out at the time will remember that making plans for the millennium was a big deal. <laughs> Probably a lot of people had a similar experience to us, which was a bit of a damp squib, um, but uh, not in London, I heard, on the, the squat parties were pretty good that year. I was in San Francisco. It was oh, absolutely very nice. Very good. Um, but, uh, you know, they planned, you know, the, the squat parties to end all squat parties. And it was in the building where the rocket was built, um, the George Louis Stevenson right. locomotive. It's an historic, uh, an historic uh, it's a heritage site, you know, a derelict building, but a historic. Everyone who wore a badge in Newcastle um, that night were conscripted to work on the quayside um, where they had the big fireworks display. None of them had had a New Year's Eve. And the story that went round is that a bunch of those officers, the chippy ones, volunteered to go and break up the rave afterwards. And so lots of us had got to the party late, as you do, got there, you know, just after midnight or something. And then within an hour, 
the place was just stormed, absolutely stormed by the cops or the busies, as you, they're known by Geordies. And they were really destructive. They smashed the decks, they impounded the sound system. You know, I remember one story about a woman who was just surrounded by police dogs and, you know, we all left and our millennium was ruined. And, you know, they, they did smash the scene because, you know, no party crew that suffers that um, is going to emerge unscarred. And the conclusion became is we can't carry on doing this. They know who we are. They're desperate to clamp down on us. Any sound system we put in the building, we're going to lose. Um, so you think that was a kind of proact- proactive, I don't know if is that the right word, um, gesture to sort of say, like, okay, we know who you are and this is what we're going to do if you carry on? I think it was just on the night shadow and fraud. We haven't had any fun. Right. We want to go and have some fun by fucking over some ravers basically um but you know the consequence of it was that you know mm. it, it it dealt a blow to this kind of um we're going to do this every week and so flash forward a few years a bunch of london squat party heads turned up at this party in newcastle one of their about a dozen people you know really outlandishly dressed who turned up at the club and then turned up at my mate's house afterwards and this sort of stuff is normal in London, but it wasn't normal for my mates. They were sure. sort of nice boys, and they got a bit put off by their confidence and by their request to cook up liquid ketamine in their kitchen. Whoa, and, stop, uh, stop, stop, and stop right there. Hold on a second, <laughs> we've got to delve into that. So uh, forgive me for not knowing all the chemistry of this stuff. So you cook up some ketamine in the kitchen. How does that work? Well, it comes in a liquid form, and mm-hmm. then you heat it up, and it turns into powder. And that's okay. it. And again, something that was very common in London. Um, but perhaps uh, ketamine was an unheard of drug, or just you know, almost like folkloric drug in Newcastle. No one had seen right. it, and these people had come up with a big bottle of the stuff, and it's like, oh my god, you know, who are these people? You know, and these alien nice cyborgs, Greek boys, up. yeah, alien cyborgs with uh, strange powder. And I bumped into them the following day, um, and they told me that they'd uh, taken, which means broken into, the Tyne Bridge. And would my friends like to come and DJ at a party there? Now, and for anybody who doesn't know, the in Newcastle, up, up on Tyne, there was this wonderful industrial piece of architecture, which is the bridge across the Tyne River, right? Yeah, it's a wonderful structure. Yeah. So when you say they'd taken it, I mean... Uh, there are four big legs to it um, mm. that go... Fr- I guess it's, you know, we're talking about 150, 200 feet up to the bridge level from the quayside. And they had a lift um, in all of them. And they'd taken one of these legs from the street level, from the from the bridge level, um, the two floors from there, which contain the top floor of the lift and then the workings of that lift, the cogs and pulleys and things above. And the party took place amongst all the lift works. Above the lift? Industrial, wow, industrial. okay. And it's not a big space, though, right? No, we're talking about, you know, maybe 150, 200 people at okay. that eventual party. Um, and this was the first thing I ever, you know, I, I, I was the broker. I introduced the DJs, and they came and DJed at this party. And it was amazing. I mean, especially in the considering the history of that. And you could get above the lift room, there was a ladder, and you'd get up to literally a bird's eye view on the quayside. It's... The closest thing I could describe in London terms would be like doing a squat party in Tower Bridge. I've got to, you've got to take your 
hat off or something off to them. So they've just shown up. And the next day, they've already kind of found a place to have the legal party. Yeah. And they just got on with it, right? They were, to use the Blues Brothers phrase, on a mission from God. You know, right. they, sure. they were not uh, members of one of the big systems down here, mm. but they knew everyone. They were well-networked right. and they were trying to set their own thing up. Strong sense of you know, methodology. They had a, ha- a raver's handbook. <laughs> this is how you go to a new town and do this thing. Got it. Right. And uh, so, so first take the building, then say, mm. we've got this amazing building. Do you want to come and do a party in it? Um, and of course, you know, it was entirely effective. And it's massively hubristic. And I say that in the most positive sense. It's just, you've decided you can do something. Um, you know, that don't ask permission, take the building. Okay, so you did this party, it's a big success, and obviously, obviously for you it's a significant thing, right? So what happens? I got to know the crew a little bit better, and I started visiting them in London. I, you know, I've been, I'm born and bred in London, so I'd be back down here for, you know, university holidays and things. And I went to um, the big multi-rig, rig being sound system, the big multi-rig, Um, squat party in Shoreditch on New Year's Eve and that to me was another moment Um, you know akin to that first party I went to under Biker Bridge but sort of bigger because that was one sound system and it was atmosphere wise it was an introduction but in terms of the audacity and the scale of this other thing it was just another thing and um, you're talking about seven or eight different um rooms which to me was massive at the time but actually isn't that massive in in squat party terms and it was fronted up by a system called underground sound and uh, you know if you've got any of your listeners who are familiar with the scene they will undoubtedly know about underground sound it sounds big to me to have a, a shoreditch party with seven different rooms seven different sound systems that's a lot of organizing and stuff and it's a squat so effectively it's kind of done unofficially so just give us fill out the picture will about how something like that comes about how it's organized how the people who are going to go to it are contacted you mentioned before about you know flyers and phones and stuff like that just give us the give us the background to how it all happens well i suppose it's all a bit compartmentalized i mean or a cell structure or something i mean you've got you've got the uh the going concern um which in this case is underground sound they've got a big following they're, they're going to be out somewhere on new year's eve and wherever they go needs to be you know the big party um, or they have the resources for it to be the big party and they talk to their mates who run other systems there were a few different ones there's one called Malfessers um, that was uh, French based the kids of the underground sound form one called Manic you know there's a there's a few different um, legendary systems around that time but mostly it was like we're going to have a techno room we're going to have a drum and bass room there'll be a dub room um, you know maybe there's a house room you know there's they, they'll They'll tick all the boxes and, you know, each um, each collective will be able to provide their own sound system. They'll run their own bar, which is the principal way they'll make money is by running the bar. And, you know, they'll obviously also sell their own drugs, which is, you know, which that income is shared to make it worth their while to cover the costs and wage people. Um, you know, later later when I was involved in helping run rooms at parties you know a, a one or a hundred quid would be a decent you know a fair wage for working on a party all night you get a hundred quid um for the central crew kind of thing and obviously you know the people who that's all they did with their lives they needed to make more money off it but 
That's but I mean, in terms of like how they found a property like that, so to to squat it. I mean, how did because that's a, that's a sort of you know you're going to do a party. It's New Year's Eve, so it's important night. Yeah, there's going to be a lot of people involved, so you need to find somewhere that you're pretty damn sure that it's going to be okay. You know, you're going to get through that evening. I mean, how did they take it, as you say, and how long did they hold it for, and the setup? I mean, to set up with that without anybody noticing, that's quite a feat in Shoreditch, isn't it? In those days, you know, Shoreditch was beginning to be the Shoreditch it is now, but nowhere near. Right, it was I remember a it was much more, more forgotten area forgotten, of town. Yeah, yeah. Quiet in the weekends particularly. Yeah. And it was, I think it was sort of Lower Kingsland Road, just off Lower Kingsland Road where this happened. Um, so, you know, even a little bit, the, not the Liverpool Street side, if you see what I mean. And um, what you mentioned about the building is actually, you know... Uh, Something that made the scene quite democratic. If you wanted to get involved and you had the nerve, like my friend and mentor that got pulled me into all of this, then you could just take a building and go talk to those systems and say, I've got a building. And uh, my friend was a climber and he literally just did not care about life or limb and was prepared to climb up several stories because you could always get in through the roof. And if you needed to break in through a door, do it on the roof. No one can see you. You know, they're not going to hear. You'll be fine. Take the roof, work the entrances from the inside and uh, change a lock and then go change a padlock and then, you know, bolt croppers, ankle grinders with the standard <laughs> tools um, that you needed to have to take buildings. Um, if you're lucky, you know, you can prize the Cytex, which is the metal stuff on the outside of the windows aside and climb in through a window. But... The good buildings were secured a bit better than that, but the roof was always accessible if you could get up there. And you had to have power, I'm assuming, or could you bring power in? It depends. Some of these parties happen with generators. Uh, Most of them happen because they went behind the meter, which means that, you know, you you ran the the power from behind the bit that the electricity company turned in on or off. Um, And, uh, you know, you took the wires round so you needed someone who was an electrician or trade <laughs> to do this and someone who wasn't going to electrocute themselves um, <laughs> or anybody else or anybody else but you know the dangerous right. bit happened right. before anyone was there right um and so the building will be taken say what a couple of weeks before or something or yeah something like that around the sort of christmas period mm, you know right. when which is again a period where you know mm. no one's looking everyone's on christmas so people would take buildings around christmas and ideally it would take some organisation, you know, you'd want the, the big systems like Underground or whoever would want to know where the building was just before or just after Christmas. No, None of the um, none of the party goers need to know mm. until the night of New Year's Eve or maybe the night before the word started to seep mm. out if you knew people. So you people would know that something's going to happen, but you don't know where. You had right. phone numbers. That's right. the important right. thing. You know, people had underground party lines saved into their phone and right. they'd change it when it got updated. Got it. And you didn't actually even need a fly. You just called the called the number. Right. And, and Or, you know, everyone knew each other right. or knew right. a bunch of be done under cover of darkness the night before because you've got fairly big trucks and things that have got to come in with all the sound system and the lights and all of that kind of stuff you know the bar is quite you know <laughs> quite sizable mass you know getting all these slabs but you know you'd have people there was a there was a guy who used to come and deliver cash or return you know he'd, he'd drive his van give you all the beer come back later for the money um, you know, it's an economy that sprang sure. up Just walk us through the day or the afternoon of New Year's Eve before it starts to open to the punters well you've got people at that stage all the crews are inside setting up 
lights, sound system, you know, finding bits of furniture to use as a bar, you know, um, and uh, yeah, it's just set up going in every room of the party, um, and uh, lots and lots of phone calls for things that were supposed to be there or not, or you know, chat with DJs and all of the rest of it, and. Um, people checking that the party line phone was charged up and that someone had, and you know, there was a moment where you, someone would have to record the message um, at about, you know, I don't know, six o'clock or something. Um, and the important thing is the location didn't need to get out early enough that the police would get wind of it because you are just a sitting duck with all of this equipment in a building. If the, you know, it takes comparatively few police to come and shut down a party before it started. The minute it's an hour old and you've got a few hundred people there it's now not possible to do anything about it. by the time you've got a few hundred party goers in there if the police are, unless they're prepared to devote huge on-spot resources to it which obviously they're not going to be able to do on new year's eve because they've got better things to be getting on with right um you know there's no way they can actually stop it all they can do maybe is turn up and just keep an eye on things right so you become sort of immune to that right and that that's how it works is it, is it get past that point of actually opening the doors what time are the doors open by the way uh before midnight right. sort of yeah nine ten ish something right. like that yeah but so i mean no one turned up i mean actually on new year's eve most people turned up after midnight right you do right. your midnight somewhere with your yeah. mates and then you go to the rave. Right. But, you know, some people got in before right. midnight. Right. So by then it's just too late. It's too late. And, you know, they were all busy on, you know, the Thames side dealing with really antisocial behaviour yeah. from drunk people, <laughs> yeah. which actually requires their resources. Yeah, or you protecting know. the public. Right? Yeah, exactly. Right. And, and, you know, like I say, the whole principle of putting on a rave is you try not to cause disturbances. Mm. And the job of the security... Um, on at the party would be to mind the you know mm. immediate surroundings of the mm. building to make sure there's not anything really sketchy going on mm. that's going to require the mm. um, involvement of law enforcement. I mean, the, the, you'll get vulnerable again when it's all over. Mm. You know, if you've been an antisocial party, then you know there may be motivation for law enforcement to come down and impound some systems. Um, but when you're at the London scale. The economy is larger and things being impounded isn't going to kill your crew like it did up in Newcastle. Mm. Um, you know, I mean, that equipment was actually owned by a professional production hire company and it right. caused serious problems. Right. But, you know, they even had a term called, it's called a suicide system. If you're going to go and do something <laughs> really cheeky, you cobble Take together old cabs and old amps and everything you don't and mind you put it somewhere it. super cheeky and you just walk away from it. Mm. But also... You know, this is another great story of collectivism is that there have been many occasions um, where the cops are outside. You know they're going to impound the system mm. and people at the party are given a speaker each and they just carry them out with them and they assemble past the police ring, loaded onto the van and off it goes. Right, so everybody mucks in yeah. to make sure it keeps going. So, okay, you got through the night. It's been a great night. Uh, well, tell and us about the vibe. I mean, tell us about that. I mean, you know, whether you're behind the scenes or whether you're actually a party goer. I mean, just well, it's why we all were there. It's why the system's bothered because all of these people, uh, you know, got paid by licensed premises too, or most of them did, but they chose to concentrate their output in the squat party scene because. You couldn't have that atmosphere any other way. You had to be outside of licensed premises, outside of the law, in order to create that freedom. And 
for me, what I experienced that night that I perhaps hadn't experienced before was incredible openness in terms of it's normal to speak to a stranger. Mm. It's absolutely normal. And people talk, that's why I believe people buy tickets for festivals in such <laughs> numbers. But he is that you can just talk to the person next to you and go, yeah. oh, look at that over there. And they'll have a conversation back with you. Yeah, but you're setting your tent up in the field and you're chatting to the person who's setting up the tent. That's why floor, people right? go. Yeah, I think because that's right. they get, they, 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 people mm. don't like living in cities where you all have to watch where you look on the tube and stuff. But in, in squat parties, it really was another level of that. And beyond that, um, bona fide psychic phenomena. You know, people coming mm. up to you, giving you something that you were thinking about needing, mm -hmm. and they just hand it to you mm. because somehow your thought wave transmitted. Mm. And, um, yeah, I mean, this, is, this sort of thing is amplified by drugs. Um, in my experience, the reason that ketamine was so popular on the acid techno scene was because... It makes people very aware of the people they're with. Its effect is extraordinarily different according to where you consume it and who you consume mm. it with. Um, and at the party, it had a effect different from anywhere else. And uh, I, I believe that sensitivity is uh, sort of enhanced people's psychic capacity. Mm. So people did, without meaning to you know receive thought waves and i mean it sounds really far out but all i can say is i've experienced it in a right. material way right. it's not me kind of being cosmic i'm not really a cosmic person it just happened and right. it's indisputable for me that's also you know why those events maybe 68 88 and <clears throat> 98 and when you're 2008 even you know you're talking about is is that that's why people remember them later on isn't it but so will for you let's let's kind of fast forward so you this is your first big squat party then just take us on a sort of whistle stop tour of uh, your the rest of your experience with these kind of squat parties in this kind of underground so i was still in newcastle living but i kind of took that um attitude of let's just do it um back to newcastle with me and i decided i want to put on my own squat party for the first time and i went and i found a building actually with my London Mentor identified this one sort of in a lesser, less congested part of the quayside, but quite close to the Tyne Bridge actually, as a good place you could fit plenty of people in. It had turned out it was a building that had been looked at from some of these old squat party heads um, that had been involved in Rebel Alliance. I found a system. My mates were going to DJ. I talked to um, some of the rabble people about going behind the meter and they said to me you've got to open a fire exit before we're going to do this for you because we want people to be safe they've got a normal sort of house-sized doorway which is your front door um, but if something goes wrong and it, you can't have you know 500 to a thousand people trying to get out through a tiny door and uh, the fire exit had a breeze block wall in front of it and in a way this is why it, it had never been partied before and taking the advice of my friend, uh, for my mentor from London, um, went down to um, knock down the breeze block wall. And for the advice I received is, if you're going to do something sketchy like that, do it in the day. If you do it at night time, obviously something's wrong. So we had a, you know, a high-vis tabard and a scruffy high-vis jacket and a sledgehammer in you know, the middle of the afternoon in broad daylight and set about knocking down this wall and i look back on it 
enormously fondly. I don't think I'll have another time in my life where something I wanted so badly I had to get to through a physical barrier and I had a sledgehammer in my hands and I was going to smash through that wall, literally. And I'll, I, you know, I wasn't a terribly physical person but just wanted to do it and never knocked a wall down before and and then it would all just collapses and you clear the rubble out and you and I phoned the phoned the electrician and said it's done. It's quite symbolic, isn't it, that knocking on the wall then? Yeah, I didn't see it that way at the time, but it really is. I mean it's it's how did the party get lots of people had a great time. They, like I said, the the squat party scene had really broken up a lot, so anything like that that happened was really prized. The Geordie community loved free parties. I suppose, you know, my kind of reputation as someone who can do was enhanced by it because you went on to do lots more didn't you then i did a lot of outdoor parties mm. and then there was another one in a club in town that was half a mile three quarters of a mile from newcastle police station and in a club that had been the powerhouse which was the main gay club and then uh, uh scotland yard ironically it was called and hosted a lot of uh, sort of ninja tune style mm. nights there you know dj food people like that and um yeah, you know, so as a club, lots of people have been to it, and it was a great venue, and no one thought you could do it. And this was very much done with my London party crewmates. They drove a Luton up with all the sound system, broke the building on the night, a few <laughs> hours before the party. And you know, I looked at my mate and I said, "We can't do that. It's too cheeky." And he just looked at me, just you know, dead serious, saying, <laughs> "It's the only building I'm interested in doing." And I went. Okay, let's do it. <laughs> I've told everyone it's happening. You know, if we fail, you know, my rep suffers. I, but I just believed in him and he got it done. And there I was standing on the front I mean, I like that night. about this whole thing as well, because there is not only the element of risk from the kind of authorities, but there's the element of risk of it all sort of going wrong or, you know, getting closed down yeah, or you not look working like out. And then, and then you look like an idiot yeah. in front of all your community people. So we're going to have to fast forward uh, quite quickly now, Will, because we're running out of time. So just give us a quick sort of uh, trip through the next uh, iteration of your squat party life before you go before you go mainstream in your <laughs> as much mainstream as you went the, I, I suppose the culmination for me was having sort of you know been a wide-eyed person looking at these incredible parties and there are lots of things we haven't mentioned actually like party inside the ring of steel after september 11th you know in mansion house in the city happening all weekend during the summer. Ring of uh, Steel being? The Ring of Steel was the security designation where policing was serious inside the city of London, inside the square mile sort of thing. Um, another one at a vast furniture warehouse in North Acton with 100 metres of glass you know, down one side of the building and a stadium strobe with 30, 40 rigs in. You know, I mean, it, the scale just kept opening up to me as I did more of this. But, you know, towards the sort of latter end of the Acid Techno Squat Party era, I put on a party with, you know, Manic Sound System and um, another um, collective called Everyone Sound. Um, and uh, I put on a room where we had a Geordie system. So I brought all the artists down from Newcastle and, and I was an equal sort of equal party doer. Um, and was there for you know four days in a row setting up partying taking down and i suppose for me that was sort of a culmination of from the outside to the inside i suppose it got really hard to keep on putting on squat parties and um, because of because of the whole changing city you know less buildings less available or the authorities getting wise to it and i don't really think it was the buildings i mean it did get tougher but the 
there was the rep about you know this kind of criminal underground was entirely distorted but um in terms of outside the law yeah there were always tons of people outside the law to put on a squat party you had to have an arrangement with the local crime family Mm. or they would come down with their heavies armed and break up your party and people could get hurt so you know and there were also a lot of people who you know were involved in petty crime or you know things like things like that people who you know would stand people up and rob them Mm. at the party now when the party was going they didn't everyone enjoyed themselves and it was one of the magical things you knew that it could go wrong but it didn't because the vibe was so amazing and so all of these kind of you know dodgy elements were workable with but what started to happen as the scene became more well known is other people came younger people actually you know early to mid-teens people who had didn't come for the music didn't come because they wanted to dance they only came because they knew there were people high on drugs there that were easy to rob and so there would be, you'd be pickpockets you know mm. I, I you used to be able to leave your bag for half an hour come back and it would be untouched but you know you couldn't have your bag on you and it be untouched right. and the people who put on the parties were getting robbed and so you know these were tough people but it stopped being worth their while because mm. these were tough people who wanted it to all be fluffy <laughs> you know that's why they did it because that was magic and that stopped being possible and the people who had the systems and could break the buildings and could do run the bars stopped being worth their while and so the scene kind of died a bit mm. Um, in terms of it being regular, I mean, they still happen, but it just there's not this. Yeah, and we talked. Scene. We talked. So that's interesting. So it was. It was not really the authorities. It was more that uh, the criminality aspect of it. Is, and you know, I did an interview with uh, Andrew and Susan, who ran um, uh, the fridge, uh, the Ritzy before that, and they did. You know, they set up the fridge and ran that. And it was interesting to see that kind of art with them too. Is is that um, you know criminal elements got involved? Even their own security security guys turned on them at one point. You know, and it got quite heavy. And it got to the point where it's like, well, you know, we loved this, but we're not loving it anymore. You know, and that's the time to sort of yeah. These were people from outside end. of the scene mm. that came in. Um, you know, I, what I would I I'd kind of don't want to. I don't want to give the impression like, you know, the seeds of its destruction were always inbuilt. That's mm. not how it right. was. I, the party um, the, the party culture maintained itself perfectly mm. well, in my view. Um, it just attracted the wrong became sort. too known about. Yeah. And, um, and yeah, people, mm. you know, you're, it was always based around, um, you know, people who'd had a rough life, mm. you know, had a rough upbringing. And they'd chosen to pull themselves out and do something really good you know mm. that was so good that people who had privilege flocked to it as <laughs> well you know um they they really had solved solved some of their problems mm. they've done some amazing stuff but then like anything if it gets too well known about outside forces come in to disrupt it and yeah partly the authorities were that but that's not what stopped the people who were making them happen it was you know there were there were vultures out there mm. yeah well i mean that's that is the story also of the counterculture isn't it we talked earlier about you know club culture itself i mean club culture has been such an important part of counterculture because it's all connected with the youth culture and subculture right but i mean um, <clears throat> so there's two forces at work aren't there? it gets absorbed into the mainstream which of course happened with that the sort of music and the club culture the expensive clubs uh you know and the whole ibiza scene and all that it could be quite pricey but also it's quite mainstream in a way, isn't it? And then also you've got at the other end 
the this outside elements kind of nibbling away at it. We were talking earlier also about the festival scene. You know, of course, the free festival scene evolved into the festival scene, didn't it? Because, you know, there's there's as well as the huge corporate ones, there's still great festivals that you've got to pay for to get a ticket to go, but they're still great. They're still countercultural in some way, aren't they? They're still, as you said, there's the sort of sense of, you know, turning up and people having a different kind of experience than their ordinary lives, you know. And uh, so in some ways, actually, that stuff evolves, doesn't it, into the mainstream or the culture. Well, there was always crossover in the sense that if you were someone who was on the party scene, you probably knew a way to get into festivals for free. You mm-hmm. know, whether you're yeah. stewarding or helping someone, you know, run a stall or whatever, you know, you were well networked. But there was always a difference between festivals and parties because festival systems have to turn off at five <laughs> and they can't turn on again until, you know, 11 o'clock or something. And it's very important the music doesn't stop. You know, that's a, that is a precondition <laughs> um, it, of, you know, what was squat party culture. But, yeah, I mean, they, they were great. You know, festivals are great, but the um, perhaps less supportive of... Um, divergent types you know some of the dodgy geezers would be vibed out of a festival environment where they were you know at the heart of the squat party movement Um, and I guess there was crossover squat parties sort of diminished a bit festivals were exploding at the same time and it just sort of people ended up doing more of that than the other a bit I mean, I also don't want to give the impression that this has stopped. It hasn't stopped. I mean, I've got older, and so I less know where it all is. That's, that's another part of the counterculture, isn't it? We, we always talk about it as though it's in the past. It's always going on somewhere. There's always an underground somewhere. I mean, it might be in South London, halfway up a tower block. You know, yeah. it's it's going on somewhere. You just don't see it at first. By the time you see it, it's probably not yeah. the underground I mean, I'm anymore. I'm not as right? networked as I was at that time. I right. don't have the numbers. I, I think also, you know. I mean, and also in London anyway, they got to a time, didn't it, where there was a dj in every bar you know there's like bars themselves became like mini parties there's just here's another quote from the museum of youth culture will for you and it's um obviously talking about you know the rave scene it starts with a moment separating a before and an after party i guess you might be sparked by drug ecstasy especially but really this experience meant a wider discovery of belonging of discovering different attitudes to race sex and gender to dancing bodies and sharing personal spaces, to culture from increased travel, more pleasure, and growing cosmopolitanism. Coming from somewhere meant being part of this wider shared change. Does that ring a bell? Yeah. Um, yeah, it does. Um, the shared change is an interesting, an interesting feeling about it. I mean, I think for the people it worked for, it was a transformative experience with me i i took from me that sense with me that sense of confidence that Mm. you know you can decide you want to go somewhere and just do it you know and just get yourself there and not ask permission and that when i you know started working in licensed events was really helpful i just felt i had a right to be places which perhaps i didn't when i was Mm. you know a young person who you know struggled at school and stuff so so it um, gave you the confidence to do those things. I mean, you've done many things since you've DJed all over the place internationally. You've run your own nights. You've been involved in a thousand festivals and stuff since. So you're still kind of like, and do you, do you see that that is a kind of flowering of those early experiences then? I think the idea that you might have an idea in your head that might not be, um, might not have cultural currency at that time, mm. but that 
that's because it's not known about. Just like those parties, they're, they're hidden history. No one knows they happened still to this day. You know, there are some good face graphic books, but there aren't any real writings about it all. Um, well, Tofu told me about the rave, uh, uh, sorry, the, uh, the squat uh, scene, you know, which he was in a bit earlier. But, uh, you know, th- there's this whole network in Europe of squats, people, you know, in, c- in connection with this sort of pre-Facebook era, yeah. the, the, you know, this kind of social, the, this sort of social connections. And, you know, he was in a band which toured squats, you know, internationally yeah. for years. And the, the free festival scene sort of like emerged or was kind of refreshed out of that. And it absolutely is a hidden history, isn't it? I mean, it's, yeah. it's a forgotten story for and, now anyway. And what that taught me is that the worthiness of an idea isn't dictated by the fact that it's known about or at this point respected. And, you know, the things... I, you know, I got involved in a number of things at the same time about sort of 13 or 14 years ago that weren't big cultural things at the time and quite quickly became so. And I guess my confidence to try and do those new things probably was inspired by you know that idea that actually behind these closed doors are things that people don't know about that are amazing and if you've got the the hubris and the determination you can you can change the fact that they're not known about you know i mean and uh, and in licensed places you're not going to get suddenly closed down you know if you can get yourself a budget and a and a booking it can it will definitely happen um so if you're out there uh, doing something interesting behind a closed door, let us know. So, Will, give us a picture, paint the picture of the room at the squat party, as you call it, the rig aesthetics. Yeah, it was. it's quite different from clubs, and it's different from festivals too, um, because those environments are a lot more carefully planned. Someone's thought about every square foot of the wall space to make it you know, attractive. But the whole point about um, a, a squat party is you're in an abandoned building. If you cover it all up, you're ruining the point of being there. So the most important things was you have a wall of sound. and uh, You may have speakers in four corners, but you'll have a wall of sound at the front with the DJs in the middle. You have really good lights. That is definitely important. I saw stadium-size lighting rigs in these parties. Um, and then you would often just have one banner which went everywhere and it would have the name of the rig and the style was quite interesting because unlike psychedelic art where you look at it and you feel like you're tripping if you looked at these drops sober you would think they're quite simple but they've been conceived with the idea of people looking at them whilst they're on drugs (laughs) and the kind of you know squat party drugs that everyone took and so you know they would there would essentially be um, depth that your um, adult mind would infer into these paintings that you wouldn't be doing sober. They'd just be flat. So they're kind of this sort of hidden relief paintings that uh, the, re- the, the dimensions only appearing when people are high. Or, and that could be contact high. It doesn't mean you have to be stimulated. But when you were in that space, when the party was in that space, then suddenly the art would leap into it. So, right. And the other part of it that's quite interesting is that it's not per se aesthetic, was people are very sophisticated about there's some old filing cabinet gets dragged over here, put on its side in a given place in the room because that's where people are going to want to sit or it's, it's in the right relation to where the rig and the exit is and the window and, you know, people would find these old bits of whatever it is disused trash or whatever it is 
and D things that became incredibly important later on. And it's, uh, it, it's an extra dimensional yes. way of understanding the space. So you also mentioned earlier, which I was intrigued by, is this, this thing called the Sunday night party. What was that? Seasoned party goers, from their experience, realised that the bit that was really worth going for was the Sunday night. It's the same at festivals. The Sunday's always the best bit. Um, it's all settled down. The need to sort of have an experience has gone, and people are just more prepared to be. Um, obviously, it's Sunday night, so the residential stuff's a bit more sensitive. Sometimes the rigs would be turned down to colossally low levels. And everyone's just so tuned in at this point. I mean, remember, it's a repetitive beat. It's just the doof, doof, doof. Um, and your ears don't need it to be loud. They can find it. Um, you'd be hearing people's voices sometimes equally with the sound, but it was still doing its job. Um, and, yeah, I mean, there's also the, the effect of people who have been on drugs for 24 hours as opposed to three just a calmness you know mm. that's where all the you know i talk about things like psychic phenomena that's where they're really happening that's where the surprising conversations and connections with people you didn't know mm. would happen the most you've been through something together right you've been through yeah. this kind of and then intense experience often leave with people you'd never met mm. before and go back to their house mm. and that was normal and, and then it's monday and and then it's monday and for most people the sun for no, people with jobs Monday, Sunday night is Sunday night. For people who rave, then Monday night is Sunday night. You've left, or Monday day, you've left the party, you've gone to someone's house, you carry on till Monday night, maybe kip on the sofa there and then go home Tuesday morning, and then it all starts again Thursday night. Well, we'll listen, Will, we've reached our own uh, Sunday night, Monday morning here. Uh, we've run out of time, but thank you so much. That was a wonderful wonder through the wild world of the Acid House Squat Party. Thank you. I hope they've still gone on somewhere. I mean, I do feel like I missed out, actually, by uh, missing all that stuff. Let's trust that they are going on, like the counterculture always is, somewhere just out of sight. If you listen to this, thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed it and Will's stories. We'll be back next time with more stories from the other side, from the counterculture. You can check them all out at www.bureauofwestculture.com and on all major podcasters now. If you listen via Apple or anywhere else where you can leave a review, do leave us a review. We'd appreciate that. And of course, be in touch. See you, hear you next time. I am Stephen Coates. Bye.